We're going to be going through the 65th Psalm this evening, and uh, I, I'd like to read as we stand in honor of God's Word. Let's read those 13 verses uh, of this Psalm, and then we'll go ahead and get into uh, the teaching. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, a song. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy they also sing. Let's pray. And Father, we, we pray that as we look at this psalm, this psalm that celebrates your grace and your provision, we pray, Father, that, that we would be given understanding by your Spirit. Might He speak to our hearts tonight, teaching us and leading us into your truth. Father, have your way with us, Lord, as you continue your work of, of, of changing our hearts, transforming us into the very image of your Son, Jesus. So, Lord, be glorified during this time, and we especially pray that you'll be glorified in our lives as a result of spending this time with you in your word, bowing before you. So, God, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this psalm, we, we see that the inscription says to the chief musician, just like so many of the psalms previously have said and will continue to, to say as we continue through these psalms, uh, it's a psalm of David. And in the inscription itself, it says a song. Now, that, that's kind of an unusual thing. We haven't seen that very often. A couple of songs before We've seen it, uh, we see it for 
four consecutive psalms, beginning here, this one through Psalm 68, uh, we, we see that it is a song. Uh, and it's not as if the others weren't intended to be sung, but this is a song of celebration. It's a song in which we see that, that, that thanksgiving is given to the Lord, acknowledgement is given to Him for, for his, the grace that He has provided to His people, uh, as well as His provision as we see at the, the, the end of the psalm, those last several verses. Uh, but isn't it true that, that provision in and of itself is a way that God's grace is shown to us, right? Uh, everything that He gives to us, well, just the whole idea of the word gives speaks about His grace. Whatever we receive from Him is His grace grace, uh, whatever He provides for us in any way, whether it's financial, whether it's a, a support group of people around us, family and friends, a church that we have, whatever it may be, it's a part of God's grace in our lives. And that grace is very, very abundant. It does cause me to, to consider, I, it just now hit me right now, the idea, of, of the, the thought of it though, but in, in the first chapter of John is John is writing uh, the introductory thoughts to his letter. And there in the, the 16th verse, he writes about grace upon grace or grace piled upon grace. You know, it, it, the, the, the law of Moses came, verse 14, the law came through Moses, but, but it, grace and truth comes from Jesus Christ. You know, and then in that 16th verse, it is grace upon grace. Grace piled upon grace. Grace just keeps on coming. And it's the idea that not only do we have the grace for salvation, but we also have the grace of God that enables us to live our lives in such a way that He is honored and glorified and we receive the abundance of life that He desires us to receive because of that. And that, that's all His grace. None of us... And all of Him. None of our works, but all of His grace. And we, we, we live and, and we, we, we live by His grace. And so this psalm speaks about that. The idea of the grace of God. We begin here in verse 1. With these words, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. Now, as we consider this idea of, of, of the grace that, that is celebrated in this particular psalm, one thing that I think is important to note is, uh, as we begin to look at this first verse, is that there's really no indication by David as his name is in the inscription, of the occasion upon which this psalm was written, this song was written. But through the nature of it, it certainly seems to be a celebration of thanksgiving to God for his provision. Now, was it for one particular harvest that was particularly bountiful? Or was it just thanks to a faithful, providing God in general? 
we, we, re we really don't know the answer to that question. But certainly God lives up to his name as the name is given to him in Genesis chapter 22. We'll look at it in just a few minutes. Um, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. We see that in Genesis 22. We'll be looking at that in just a few moments. The first portion of this psalm, in the first four verses, we see that uh, David praises God for his salvation. Um, we, we, we see him writing in this very first verse, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. In the following verses, we see some, some clues in regard to the idea of, of salvation. Uh, the word atonement in verse 3, in verse 4, approach, approaching him, so giving, being given access to him, right? Dwelling in his presence or in his courts, as it's listed here. Uh, being satisfied with him. These are all terms that, that have to do with, with the deliverance or the salvation that God has given to us. But he begins with praises awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And th this term awaiting you could be translated as praise is silent before you. Now, the, the silence in and of itself, exactly what that means, we're not quite sure because it could mean just simply the silence that exists before an awe-inspiring God before, we, before whom we bow in fear and reverence. You know, there, there are times in a service, I've, I've experienced it uh, as a Bible teacher uh, on Sunday mornings with you guys, I've experienced it at a retreat where it just seems that God is, is really speaking very, very clearly. And, and generally, this has something to do with some area in which everyone in the house is being convicted. And it's just very, very quiet. Like right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it, 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 and, and I think that it's just a reality of the, the presence of God being such that it's like, well, what can we say? You know, and, and, and honestly, when we're going through the Word and God speaks to us something in regard to conviction and, and stuff, it's like, what are we going to say? Oh, wait a minute, Lord, you know, you don't understand. You know, I mean, we can start arguing him, with Him like that, but we don't do that. If we, if we want to grow in him, we want him to speak to us in that way. And so it's like the conviction hurts so much it feels good, right? You know what I mean? You guys know what I mean by that? Yeah, I see a few heads shaking. Other, okay, okay. Yeah, you know, but it could be that, that very idea, praise is awaiting you. But, but also I think, though, that because the, the, the word Zion is there. That's the location where the praise is awaiting him. And Zion is, of course, the location where the temple was built. If David indeed wrote this, the temple was not yet there. 
but he knew that it would be. And really, it's in reference to the idea of the gathering of people, Zion or the temple, the, the, the courts of the temple, uh, as are mentioned later on in this stanza, in the, in the fourth verse in particular. We, we see that these represent the, the, the gathering places of God's people. And for today, it would speak about us gathering together as we are right now at church. But when we say at church, we have to remember, of course, that we are the church. It's kind of like we're always at church because we're a part of the church. If we are gathered, if we're with one other person who knows the Lord, we're at church, right? Because we're, we're, we're together as followers of Christ. But we know what we mean by that. You know, when we say, I'm going to church, you know, well, what we mean is, I'm going to the place that, is, that has been designated by God for our group in Upland to gather that we can worship and praise Him. It's a lot easier to just say, we're going to church. But that's what we mean, right? We have to remember, that's what we mean. This is just a place where we gather. It's a gathering. That's the idea of church, is the, the, the worshipers of God gathering together. You know, so you know, if you're by yourself, you can't have church. Yeah, you can be by yourself and, and joining us online. And by the way, those of you who joined us online, I'm glad you're here joining us. Um, pray that you will join us live someday soon. And it's kind of the point that I'm making right now. You know, being home alone, unless you're gathered with other believers there, there's going to be an element of being at church there. But being alone, you really can't be doing church. You can receive the teaching. Perhaps you can join in with the worship, but it's not a gathering. The definition of church, the New Testament Greek word, ecclesia, for church, that means a gathering together of God's people. That's what it means. So uh, it could very well be that for us. You know, we, we come together on a Wednesday night and, and more of us gathering together on a Sunday morning. And are we anxious to arrive there? And, and are we, you know, saying to God, you know, Lord, you know, when we get there, we're just going to praise you. You know, the praise is awaiting you when we get there together. You know, that idea, I, I, I think there's some, some indication of that here as well. So, Praise is awaiting him. Praise is awaiting our God. Um, and to you the vow shall be performed. In, in David's day, of course, the, the, the sacrifices and the offerings were being made. And it was the duty of, of, of every Jewish person to come to the Lord with those offerings and the sacrifices. And a commitment to God meant the offering of those things. And so there's a sense of a vow involved with that. You know, and for us today, it's a bit different. But the whole idea of commitment includes the idea of a vow. You know, if I'm committing my life to Christ, I am promising him my, my, my devotion, 
I'm promising to him myself, that, that I'm promising to him that he's going to be included in every aspect of my life, whether it's finances or gifts and talents or time, um, gifts that he's given to me, such as family, those kinds of things. There's a vow included, included in the idea of commitment to him, right? So as we come together, you know, the praise and offering given to him as we gather together is a signal of continuing to intend to keep that vow of commitment. Not just simply joining together to praise and worship him, but the other seven or the other six days of the week, you know, every every hour of the week really given over to him because he's worthy to be praised. And so th th those are some of the ideas that are included here. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. You who hear prayer. Isn't that a great title for God? The one who hears prayer. He does. We know that he does, right? You guys realize how blessed we are as followers of Christ to know that we serve a God who we know to be the only true God. He's the one and true living God. There is no God beside him. We believe that. Which means that others who claim to serve a God by some other name are really serving someone who's not a God at all. Now that's, that's pretty controversial. We have to be careful about how we deal with that issue with those who are doing so. For example, if we have friends who may be of the Islamic faith, for example, or Buddhist, or Hindu, or fill in the blank. Talk about grace. How gracious it was of God to call us to himself, to reveal himself to us the way that he has, causing us to bow before him. Why us? Why not them? Well, it's not that God doesn't want them for himself. He does. Some are resisting. Some haven't answered the call yet. We don't know. But we have. And he hears our prayers. Um, he's the only God who can. Well, quite frankly, because, well, he's the only God. And he's a personal God in relationship with us to a point that we can pray to him and we understand that he hears our prayers. Do you guys understand how, how, how blessed we are for that? And, and, we, and we can take prayers for granted. We can take the fact that we can pray to a God who hears us 
and also will answer us. We take that for granted. Life in this world, which is broken by sin, and so many people broken by sin because of sin, you know, it's not the natural way of things in this world. But God has reached out to us and drawn him to drawn us to himself, um, revealing himself to us so that we do have relationship with him and we can call upon him as father. And so when, when the disciples asked, asked him to teach them to pray, he told them, when you pray, pray this way, beginning with our father, who's in heaven. And then just went through the rest of the prayer, this model prayer that he gives to us. It's just incredible, guys. I mean, it, it's just a crazy, crazy thing for us to think about. If we think about the reality of who we are and what we, and what we are, we know the sinners that we are. We don't like to talk about it. We certainly don't want to tell other people about it, but we know. We know. And God knows better than us because he knows more of those sins than we will admit to. And by the way, it's a grace that God gives to us to be able to identify our sinfulness too. Because apart from that, we won't come to him in our need. But you guys get the point. We hear his prayer. Or he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. And, and that's the whole idea. It's kind of the, the confidence of him hearing, the confidence of, of him answering those prayers. And he speaks of those answers a, a bit later as well, God answering in uh, the, the prayers that we pray. But he also writes here, to, all, to you, all flesh will come. Now, here we see all flesh will come there in in, in verse 2, we, we see a bit later that in, in verse um, 8, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs, speaking of those who are, are, are not a part of the, in the context here with this psalm being written, the, the Jewish nation, uh, the farthest parts of the earth that there could be a reference here to the idea of Jesus' millennial reign and all nations coming to bow before him. That could be a part of what's being alluded to here. But we don't, we don't really know for sure exactly what that is, but it could certainly refer to that. By the way, one of the things, and, and let me back up just for a second with this idea of hearing prayer. You remember this past Sunday, we were in Acts chapter 10, and we're talking about Cornelius, right, there in Caesarea. And in that passage there, in the fourth verse, remember, while he was praying in the afternoon of prayer at, at, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, an, an angel appeared to him in a vision and said in that fourth verse, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. This is post-Pentecost. Uh, he was not yet 
a follower of Christ, but God, as I shared with you on Sunday, God knew the sincerity of his heart. As a God-fearer, he prayed on a regular basis. And, and God certainly did hear those prayers. His, the prayer, his prayers and his alms were coming up as a memorial. And God answered those prayers by sending Peter. We'll be talking about this for the next couple of weeks, really, uh, on, on Sunday, by sending Peter to, to give him the gospel message that he can be made right with God and be brought into a personal relationship with him. That was the, 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 the extent of the sincerity of his heart, which is a total blessing to see that. All flesh will come. I think another aspect of this, too, is that when those around us who do not believe in Jesus Christ, however near however close they may be to us, family members, close friends, or casual acquaintances, whatever it may be. But when they watch us as believers, as Christians, and they know that we pray, they'll ask us to pray for them when they have some kind of a need. You know, if... if, if if you got a job, you got people that you work with, they don't know the Lord. But, you know, when, when a young daughter is in the hospital after, have, have, after having been run over by a car, they'll come to you and say, please pray for my baby. Right? They do that because they know we pray. And they're believing that perhaps God will answer that prayer. You know? It's a part of our witness to them, is being faithful prayer warriors who sees God answer the prayers in our lives and being faithful to tell about those deeds. I mean, uh, we're going to be talking about his awesome deeds in just a few minutes. That's a part of what takes place in our lives, the awesome deeds of God. Well, verse 3, iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. You know, the... Uh, David is obviously speaking about his own sinfulness. And as he does, he also acknowledges the reality of God providing atonement. You know, uh, we, we know about what God had, had given to the Jews through the writings of Moses and the law and so forth and and the, the tabernacle that had been instructed, the sacrifices that were, that were being made, the Day of Atonement, and, and all of that. But there's this idea of, of David as a Hebrew man understanding that God will bring atonement for his sins. Um, and of course, we know that ultimately that was satisfied in Jesus Christ being the atonement for the all of sin that ever has taken place in this world of every human being. All, all sin in the world was placed upon him as the Lamb of God. You will provide atonement for our sin. 
Now, as we, as we consider that, the idea of this atonement, and I, I spoke earlier about this, this pastor is speaking about salvation, you know, the idea of, of uh, that we see in verse, verse 4, the, the words, what, atonement here in verse 3, approach in verse 4, dwelling in, in the courts or in his presence, being satisfied with his goodness and so forth, all elements that speak about salvation. As we see that this is a psalm thanking the Lord for provision, I reference the name given to God, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, as given in Genesis 22. In, in chapter 22 of Genesis, verses 6 to 8, we see these words. Now, this is connected with, with, with the Lord speaking to Abraham about taking his son Isaac and offering him as a sacrifice. After Abraham had received the promise from God that that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, as the sands on the, on the seashore. Also, that it would be through Isaac that those descendants would come. Now, the writer to the, to the Hebrews tells us that, that Abraham believed that as he was being obedient to God, intending to sacrifice his son, that the only thing he could come up with is that, well, God's just going to raise him from the dead because that's the seed through which these descendants will come and through which the Messiah will come as well. God's going to raise him from the dead. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Well, they're on their way. They arrive, and then here in verse 6 in Genesis 22, we pick up. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. So they stopped, and they went up to the mountain, Mount Moriah. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, and Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, virtually every translation of that verse says it that way alluding to the fact that God is going to provide the sacrifice. He's going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. But interestingly, the King James Version, the old King James Version, says it this way, God shall provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And the way to take that is that he's going to give himself as that lamb. Which, of course, we know he did in the person of his son, the lamb of God. It's interesting there. But this is the context. A few verses after that, that's where the, the name God will provide, Jehovah Jireh, is given. It's in the context of the offering being given by God, being provided 
by God. The offering for sin for the burnt offering being provided by God. So anytime we think about that name Jehovah Jireh, God is a provider, normally, I think normally we are such that we normally think about that, well, God will provide for us financially. You know, that's the normal way that we think about that. Usually he's going to provide for us because that's something that, that, that strikes us most regularly. But every time we do, we've got to remember the context of that name that given by God or given to God. It's in the context of deliverance. It's in the context of salvation. God providing a lamb, Jesus, as the lamb of God who died for our sins that our sins might be removed from us. And so just the whole idea of, of, of that waiting for him. God hearing prayer, all flesh coming, iniquities coming, and so forth. You know, guys, um, in, in speaking about the, the God hearing our prayer, you know, one, one verse that has always blessed me, and this is in relation to God not only hearing it, but also answering it, and his ability to do what we're asking. Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, but to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or all that we think. Have you ever wanted to pray something and you just thought, I dare not ask God for that? Well, he's able to answer it. If it's according to his will and so forth, right? He's able. But, you know, it, it's just the, the reality of, of God answering our prayers. In this fourth verse, we see this idea of salvation. Um, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. Blessed is the man you choose. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And we know according to the writing of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love. I always found it interesting that, that Paul didn't write that we might be saved from our sin or that we might be made a child of God. No, he says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's why he chose us from before the foundation of the world. But we've been chosen by God. We have. We've been chosen by him. You know, there's a huge discussion within the church about whether, you know, uh, being chosen by God or, 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 uh, and, and, all, and, and how that relates to us choosing him. You know, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, as he's speaking to the apostles on that night before he was crucified. And, and, and there are some who would believe that because we've been chosen from the beginning that we really didn't have any choice to make in following Christ that we had to. And, 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 and well, I believe it like this. Yes, we were chosen, 
And yes, we have a free will to choose ourselves. We have a free will to respond. You know, those who say that God chose you and we don't have a choice, but they'll talk about responsibility. But responsibility is the, the, the duty upon us to respond to what was given. But response, our response is a choice that we make, right? And, and I think God, God accomplishes his purposes through the choices that we make. Knowing what we're going to do beforehand According to his foreknowledge, Peter writes, you know, so it's that one of those things that we, we'll, we'll never fully understand it. We'll, we'll never fully understand it. You know, it, it's been worded that, you know, the idea, if you look at a railroad track and you've got two rails there, you know, both God uh, choosing us and, and our ability to choose or our free will if we, if we name each one of those rails according to those two things, we see them going off into the direction, but side by side, never really coming together. But if you look way down, if it's, if it's straight all the way to the horizon, they appear to come together at the horizon. And that's kind of the way it is. It's like, we don't know how that happens. We don't know how they work together. But the Bible tells us that he chose us from the beginning. And we also have a free will to choose. And so I think we have to be careful. You know, um, I, I, I just kind of, uh, in believing what Isaiah wrote in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, that as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are, are his thoughts and his ways above ours. Some things I just can't figure out. But I know both are true. So I'm just going to let God worry about that. But I have to be careful that because I believe Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, I have to be careful that I don't allow that to bring me to a place of laziness and not even try to find out if it's within the scriptures. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm going to leave that to God. I know that's a hard one. I'm going to leave that to God. I still have responsibility to search the scriptures to find out because he may be speaking to us in regard to that. But some things he's not spoken. So I think those are things, attitudes that we have to have. The main point here is the man who, God's choo who God chooses is blessed. And the one that he causes to approach him is blessed. Even the idea of causing to approach, he's the one that causes us to approach him. He gives us, he, he gives us the will and, and he gives us the means by which to do it. That, that's consistent with, uh, with Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. You know, so it, th these are things that, that may be beyond us, but yet, not understanding exactly how it happens, but at the same time it is true. In Hebrews 10, the idea of approaching God, Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25, you know, uh, uh, several verses here, but let, let's read this. Therefore, brethren, um, the writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, 
by the blood of Jesus, that's the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies is referred to there, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of Jesus, right? And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of, yourselves to, of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you see the day approaching? The day in reference to the last days, the, the, the end of the last days, the last of the last days? Is what's in reference being referenced to here? Yeah. So, so this idea of of approaching him and and belonging to him. Now, one, one thing also with this fourth verse, as David is writing about your courts, your house, your holy temple, which did not exist in David's day. But let us remember, I, some would write that, well, maybe David didn't really write this and it was written by somebody else later, referring to that. But David had an understanding of the layout of the tabernacle, which was basically a pattern or patterned after the tabernacle that's in heaven. And David had it in his heart to build a temple, but God wouldn't let him. Perhaps this is written at a time after God, or after David had envisioned the temple. Uh, he was going to give it over to Solomon to build, but he made a lot of preparation for it, didn't he? A lot of preparation for the temple that was going to be built. So because it didn't exist yet, I don't think that's a, that, that's a solid argument, really, for saying that David must not have written this because the temple didn't exist yet. It certainly existed in his own mind, and he believed that it came to him from God. So I, I think that that's something that, that, that's, that's to be added to this. Um, we are privileged to be able to dwell in his presence, that, that he may dwell in your courts there in verse 4 being satisfied with your goodness of with the goodness of your house of your temple of your holy temple this speaks about the the, the the blessing and the rest the satisfaction that comes to us by dwelling in the presence of God that's what this speaks of and that's really the only place where we're going to find true satisfaction that, of course, is why Mick Jagger never found satisfaction. He never found God. Maybe he still will. But, you know, um, there are too many believers who look for the gifts 
of God, the blessings of God, the grace of God, the, the things that he supplies for us. Whether it's material things, emotional things, relationships, whatever it may be. You know, and rather than God himself. Now, you guys will recall that when Joshua brought the people into the promised land and he started, you know, giving certain portions of that promised land to, to particular uh, uh, tribes of the people of Israel, the Levites didn't get anything, right? They didn't get any land. There was no portion for them in terms of a physical material things, and no, no land was given to them. And in Numbers 18.20, this is what the Lord said to Aaron. He said, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. So he's speaking about what's going to happen. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. He, God himself, was the portion. Rather than having land, they had God. The Levites, the priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. And the same goes with us. The greatest gift that God can give to us is himself. He has given us himself. And if we have the one who is the provider of all good things, what, what do we have or, or, or what is it that we can say we don't have that we need, right? Nothing. And, and yet because God hasn't provided something, we can accuse him of not giving us what we need. And say, Wait a minute. I, I, I think the word is, of God is fairly clear that that he knows a lot more than we do. And my desire for things can taint the idea of God's provision and what he actually has given. Thinking that perhaps he hasn't given something that I want, that I feel like I need, but God knows better than me. And the way I've got to look at it is, you know what? If I feel like I need something, but I don't have it, God being the provider of all good things, of, of all things that I need, of, of, of everything that is good, he's not given it to me yet, then that must mean that I really don't need it. Why do I feel this way? You know, and it can be things that God has given us, given us a desire for, God maybe just, just be saying, well, not right now, not yet. You don't need that right now. And I think to a great degree, when we have a yearning or a need for something in this world, which is not necessarily a bad thing, could even be a scriptural thing, but you don't have it at this point in time, I think what God is doing is that he is causing us to desire something and he wants us to come to a place where we, where we realize that he is the one who provides full and complete satisfaction and rest. Not anything that I might have, not any person I might have a relationship with, 
None of those things is he himself. So it's like, no, I'm not giving you that yet because you've not yet found your satisfaction in me. And I'm drawing you to myself so that you can find me instead. And more than once, I've heard stories about when people came to that realization, the thing that they were praying for actually comes their way. Once they truly depend, truly begin to depend and rely on God himself. And I think that's something that's very, very important for us. Well, verses 5 through 8. We've got just a few minutes to finish this psalm. We will. We will do it. Um, By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of of the far off seas. Another uh, indication of all will come to him and so forth, right, that we alluded to earlier. Uh, Verse 6, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs, who make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. We'll stop there and we'll look at the, these, these verses just for a moment. Here we see David praising God for his mighty works. He, he's alluding to the, 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 the power and might of God, the power of his creation the power demonstrated through creation, and as well as his authority over all that was created. For example, if you look down in verse 7, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves. There's a familiar, there are a few very familiar stories for us, events, I should say, not stories in the sense that they didn't happen, but events in the life of Jesus of calming the seas. He even walked on the water one time. But in Mark chapter 4, verses 39 to 41, Jesus in that boat, as they're going across, he said, let's go to the other side. And then the, the, the storm arose and the, 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 the apostles are bailing the water out of the boat. They think they're going to drown. They think they're going to be killed. And then, then we see in verse 39, chapter, Mark, or chapter 4 of Mark, then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. How amazing would that have been? Not only did the wind stop, but the waters were immediately still. Everything just came to a sudden halt. Boom. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Referring to the fact that he told them, let's go to the other side. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? His power and authority over nature, over all that he created. I want to relate that to what we see up in the very first portion of this here in the fifth verse when we see, by awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us. The idea of awesome deeds, and I want to talk about this word awesome just for a moment, because we in our culture, the way that we use the word awesome in the English language has taken so much away from this word as as it is intended to be used in the scriptures. Um, In the King James Version, 
it says, by terrible deeds in righteousness. Terrible as in terrifying. The word awesome has a certain fear, a awe-inspiring kind of, a experience, of an experience. Fearful and terrifying. Um, in First Chronicles, we see in chapter 17, verse 21, And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make yourself to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people, whom you, re whom you redeemed from Egypt. So there's a reference to Egypt here. Um, and the way that God redeemed, drew out, delivered his people from Egypt. All the plagues, you know, the... The, the Nile River being turned to blood, the, the frogs and the locusts, and even, you know, the death of the firstborn at the end. It caused them to fear. Um, I, I like the way that the um, Amplified Version translates this uh, passage here in Psalm 65, verse 5. It says this in the Amplified. By fearful and glorious things that terrify the wicked but make the godly sing praises, do you answer us in righteousness, rightness and justice, O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence and the hope of all the ends of the earth and of those far off on the seas. The, the, the terrifying acts of God, you know, and the only reason we as followers of Christ, we as believers, don't fear in that way is because we understand the love of God as shown through Jesus Christ dying for our sins. But when those who don't have that confidence, it's a terrifying thing. And, and so God can, be, can look to them like something that he's not. He is that, but he's also love and compassion and, 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 and mercy and grace, but they don't see that in those works. You know what I mean? And that, that's kind of how that works. But that, that's the, 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 the root of that word, this, the, the idea of awesome. You know, it, it's not like you know, well, that was awesome, dude. Yeah, you know, no, awesome. I just love that. You know, I mean, you know no. It is awe-inspiring and fearful, making people want to hide in fear. That kind of awesome. That's what this is speaking of. Now, he will not Act that way toward the, those that are covered by the blood of Christ. Because that, because bottom line is that's his attitude toward sin. The wrath that is going to come is because of sin. 
And as your sin and mine are removed, we don't, we don't need to fear the wrath of God, but his wrath is coming. And you know that, that, that term scared straight? That's nothing compared to this. Nothing compared to this. This is reality. And so that word awesome, maybe we should kind of just stop using that word. Because it, it, it devalues, I think, the word as the Holy Spirit intends it to be used within the scriptures. Let's be careful about that. But the awesome deeds of righteousness, and that way he's going to answer us. I alluded earlier about how the answers are going to come, believing that God is going to answer. He will do for us the kinds of things that he did for the people of Israel, delivering them from Egypt. You know, I, I remember reading one time from A.W. Tozer the, the thought that, you know, we should believe that God will do for us today what he have, has ever done for any other man ever. Ever. Why not? Maybe just simply because we don't believe he will. Let's go on. So this passage here, beginning of verse 5, speaking about the, 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 the might and the power of God, the, the, the confidence in prayer and so forth. Let's move on to verse 9 through 13. You visit the earth and water it. You guys ever look at rain as being a visitation from God? That's what this is saying. You know? You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. So these verses speak about God's provision and praising God for it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. You know, this, this, this is the, at the end of this psalm, this praise for his provision. This is the portion that could be called the harvest song. You know, just re rejoicing at the bounty that God has provided. And I've been blessed to be able to travel to Israel on several occasions. And, and when I'm there, the, normally the guide, who is uh, a, a native Israel most of the time, sometimes I've, I've, we've had a guide that wasn't uh, on, a, on a couple occasions, but most of the time it is. It is. But they have a, a, a very real sense of a national pride about the way that God has taken care of them over the years. And, and this whole aspect of God providing rain, you know, Deuteronomy 11, 13, and 14, God promised them, and it shall be. Before these verses, he's saying, if you obey my commandments, and then the details having to do with that. But then he says, and it shall be, that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. 
God providing. You know, they, they, they understand the need for this early and latter rain. But we see here at the end that the pastures themselves being clothed with flocks, the valleys being covered with grain, that they shout for joy, they also sing. Nature itself crying out their praises with joy, with, with gladness. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, we're going to close with these two verses. The, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of God, of our God. This is directly in reference to the, um, the state of things during the millennial reign of Jesus. But we see here how the land itself rejoices. You know, the valleys rejoice, the hills rejoice. Uh, the hills are alive with the sound of music. No, that's not, that's not right. Um, they're, they're rejoicing in praise to God for the way that he blesses his land. And so this, this psalm, this psalm of grace and provision, beautiful psalm. But has God provided for you? Has he provided for me? Of course he has. He still is Jehovah Jireh. But let us remember the greatest thing that he's provided for any of us ever is himself and the life that we receive through him. And Father, help us to remember that. Help us rejoice in not the gifts that we receive, although yes, we do rejoice, but help us to primarily rejoice just simply because we have you. You've given us yourself. You, the God of all creation. You who have given us your son Jesus, who is the manifestation, the demonstration of your love for us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for every provision you've given, for every good thing you've ever done, for every good thing you're going to do, and even the good things that don't feel good to us, Lord, you have intended for that because all things do work together for good for those of us who love you and are the called according to your purpose. And so, God, we praise you today. We bless your name. We thank you. Every way with our hearts as we continue to walk with you and be honored and glorified through us, we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. The ladies are going to lead.